0: Uh, what's going on everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Really grateful to have you guys with us. You know, one of the things I love the most about Harlem is all the history that lines these streets. Uh, whenever you walk around just in this very neighborhood, uh, you walk uh, and your feet touch the ground where other great men and women have walked. Uh, Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X, uh, just to name a few. There's actually a story about Malcolm X, and he would stand uh, outside of churches waiting for people to get out of church. Him and a couple of his brothers from the Nation of Islam, they would sit there, and they would catch someone dressed to the nines, and they would ask them this one question, what difference does your faith in Christ make in this community? He would go from person to person, and I imagine a lot of people walking away from him as fast as they could. It's a really important question, though. When I first heard that question, honestly, it kind of felt like a punch in the stomach because I imagined Brother Malcolm sitting outside in front of Renaissance. Uh, Maybe our parishioners, when they leave, you're not dressed up in old school uh, outfits and church hats. But on your way to brunch, if he was to ask you that question, what would you answer? What difference does your faith in Christ make in this community? It's a question that I think we have to answer because from the very beginning of Christianity, uh, the faith that was handed down to us from Jesus and the apostles to everyone else, it was a faith that did not disconnect the personal experience with Jesus with the social impact that followers of Jesus have or, and are supposed to make. As a matter of fact, the earliest Christians, uh, all the way back to, uh, for example, James, and here's how he describes what faith is. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress, and to keep keep oneself unstained from the world. Here, James is tying together these two things of personal and social ethics. On one hand, he says this, that the, the religion that God actually accepts, if you're wondering, God, what kind of religion from me, what kind of practices, what kind of habits from me do you accept as good and godly, here it is. To live a life where you are paying attention to the vulnerable, and uh, we're not separating the two, and you're living a life from keeping keeping yourself unstained from the world. And James is writing to a group of people saying, there are people outside of the church that live any way they want to, and I don't want you to do that. And there are people who live their life in complete disregard for those who are vulnerable, and I don't want you to do that either. As a matter of fact, the early Christians, even though it's easy to romanticize uh, the early church. The early Christians lived their life in such a captivating way that Malcolm X would have never dared to ask him that question. In 251 A.D., there was a plague that spread throughout the Roman provinces. Uh, Some scholars think that it might have been smallpox. Now these plagues, uh, this is before people washed their hands and they had Purell and all this other stuff. Uh, So these plagues would spread through entire towns and villages like wildfire. In some instances, up to 25% or even 33% of people would die just in one outbreak. So here's what happened. Everybody who had any money and any ability to leave left, except for the Christians. Christianity spread in antiquity not because it was a state-sanctioned religion. Christianity spread back in the day not because they had a poppin' Instagram page. And our page, Renaissance NYC, please follow us, we we got some... (laughs) We got some really good stuff happening, I'm just saying. Christianity spread because they saw people living and loving so self-sacrificially that it was contagious. When everybody else left, they engaged. Now, as a pastor, I have a lot of conversations with people, most of them awkward, um, about faith and about God. The ones that are not awkward and the ones that I have with people that they're actually intrigued about my life and my faith uh, happen to hap- all happen whenever they hear about my life, which is different than theirs, particularly if I'm living in such a way that I'm sacrificing myself, and I'm not just interested in my own good, but in the good of other people. My wife and I, we've talked about this a number of times, this is our thing, this is a description, not a prescription of what you need to do. This is just a conviction that we have been operating on for the last number of years. Uh, My wife and I have uh, been burdened for the last couple of years about the New York City, uh, the school system in general, and uh, the level of a gap between what some kids, between the haves and the have-nots, it's a cliff. I sat through a, a, a PTA meeting here at PS76, and I, I listened to the PTA celebrate that they had uh, you know, $2,500 that they raised for uh, the school year. And as they were celebrating, my heart was sinking. Their schools in the Upper West Side raising a million dollars like it's nothing. $25 wouldn't even get you in the door. There are so many gaps in the, in, in the education system, and one of the burdens that my wife and I have felt is that we would engage this prayerfully, Uh, we would engage this and we would invest our lives in public school system, not the best public school in the world um, either. Not the joint from Lean On Me with Morgan Freeman, not that, not that, that bad either, but that we would engage it. In every single conversation that I have with people about life and faith, the ones that revolve around this one simple question right here, they, I'll be talking to a parent from daycare and they'll say, oh, what school is, are you putting your son in? And I'll tell them what school, and this is the question they all ask, why would you do that? That right there is a wide open door for, for me to talk about faith and say, well, actually, man, my faith compels me to not just be worried about myself, but man, we really feel like part of the reason we're here in Harlem is to see a movement of people come together to invest sacrificially into the schools so that there are no more haves and have nots, but that we're all coming together. In Colossians and in 1 Peter, uh, the scripture writers uh, put this one thing out there that is, has it's impacted me in a lot of ways, where they say, you should always have an answer for those who ask you about the hope that lies within you. Here's what the scripture writers are implying. They're implying that you and I are living questionable enough lives that people want to know why you're living your life the same way. Now... Full disclosure, we could all do a better job with our money, with our time, with our energy, with our resources. I woke up at 3 a.m. on Friday to order the new iPhone, the gold joint, so I could stun on y'all. You know what I'm saying? I got, I got the plot, the max, bro. I got, I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm not playing games with y'all. We could all do a better job of how we spend our time, our money, and our resources. And my goal today is to not make you feel guilty, but what if, What if we lived a life that when people heard the name Renaissance, when when you talked to them about your faith in Jesus, they were intrigued? That they were so interested in what is this thing about Jesus all about? Because if this is the way you're living your life, man, I want a piece of that too. I think it would change the narrative of Christianity, certainly in Harlem and also in this country. And this is why justice is one of our values here at Renaissance. Now, when I say the word justice, most people immediately go to retributive justice, which is thinking about Eric Garner, Chakesha Clemens, Trayvon Martin, and all of the other cases in which someone was harmed and there was not an adequate and proper penalty for that crime. And that is certainly one aspect of justice. But when the Bible talks about justice, man, it gives it a much bigger category. It it includes that, but it extends it way beyond just simply giving someone um, uh, a penalty for their crime. In its most basic meaning, it means to treat people equitably. So on on one hand, it means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status, and anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. That's... The understanding of justice that we have for the most part. But the second piece of justice that the Bible includes is one that we don't want to talk about and think about too often. It is giving people their rights, particularly those in society that don't have anyone listening to their voices, that don't have anyone standing in the gaps for them. 200 times in the Bible, the Bible uses this word mishpat, Uh, to to talk about justice, and I'm going to run down a couple of scriptures where the Bible describes justice in a beautiful way. In Deuteronomy 27 and 19 it says, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, then all the people shall say, Amen. Zechariah 7 and 9, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 18. The Lord your God defends the cause, the Mishpat, of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. When you look up the word justice all throughout the Old Testament, to be about justice is to seek the restoration of people, particularly those who are the most vulnerable. Throughout biblical times, there were four groups of people who were particularly vulnerable, uh, widows, orphans, immigrants, and I forgot the other one, so it's three groups of people who were particularly vulnerable. <laughs> and the poor in general, yes. Um, to be about justice biblically is to seek the restoration of people. The early church knew this one thing, that Jesus had done something in their lives to restore them, and restored people went after restoring other people. And it wasn't just personally, it wasn't just with a good scripture to read, it was with the entirety of their lives. Now, I want us to uh, move past guilt because my goal is not to guilt anybody today because guilt would be an amazing, very short-term motivation in your life. Uh, We can talk about all the ways that you could have done a better job today and you would leave here feeling bad and guilty about yourself and for a good week, you'd be on it. that's not my goal. My goal today is that something grows inside of you and me today that makes us more just people. There's a story in scripture that we started last week that I wanna return to this week Uh, And it, on its surface, doesn't appear to be about justice, but it, it it encapsulates the heart for justice in amazing ways. It's the story of Zacchaeus, and it starts in Luke 19, verse 1 through 10. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So, running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. The other people who saw it began to complain. He, Jesus, has gone to stay with the sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, in Roman colonies, uh, tax collectors uh, were the most hated of, uh, of people. Um, they basically would extort everyday hard-working people of their money and then they would hide behind the Roman government. As a result, they were routinely viewed as outsiders to the community of faith. Nobody in Israel wanted to be associated with a tax collector. And we see this man named Zacchaeus, who evidently has something going on in his life where he's starting to feel some dissatisfaction or something is calling him to want more out of life. So he risks it a little bit and he's willing to put himself through ridicule and he stands uh, and and climbs up a sycamore tree, all in the hopes to find a glimpse of this dude named Jesus who everybody has said was a great teacher and a a miracle, miracle worker. Jesus sees him and he does the unthinkable. He calls him down and then says, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your crib. He invites himself into Zacchaeus' house, and as a result of Zacchaeus experiencing this great, uh, this great miracle worker of Jesus, uh, inviting himself into his house, Zacchaeus' life has changed. And he does two things immediately, which we see are uh, essentially justice. The first thing he does is he immediately turns his attention from just himself to other people. He says, Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. He's paying attention to those who are vulnerable. Then secondly, he says, and if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to repay them four times as much for what what I've done. He's admitting and he's owing up to wrongdoing. He's making sure wrongdoing does not go unpunished taking care of the vulnerable, making sure wrongdoing is not going unpunished, this is what Zacchaeus is experiencing. Now, in order for us to become people of justice, I think there are three things that I wanna highlight from this story um, about justice that we see. The first is the motivation for justice. The second is the act of doing justice. And the third is the identification needed to do justice. The motivation for justice, Uh, the act of doing justice, and the identification needed to do justice. Uh, Man, the older I get, the more and more I realize that what you do matters, for sure. But why you do it matters a whole lot more. Uh, My oldest son is three, and he's at the age right now where he just basically says why to everything. And after like 16 answers, I'm like, bro, I ain't got nothing else for you. Do it, or else I'm gonna push you. That's what I'm gonna do. (laughs) The older he gets, though, it's gonna be way more important that he understands why we're asking him to do certain things. At three years old, he doesn't need to fully understand why he needs to listen to me on the street. He does need to know that when I call him on the street, when he's on his scooter, he needs to stop, period. The older he gets, the more and more he's gonna need to understand why his decisions are gonna lead him in certain pathways, and I fully believe inside of all of us that there comes a point in your life where you just need to just do whatever it is that God is calling you to do, but God is much more fundamentally, for your maturity and for my growth, trying to get us to, un- to understand our motivations and why we're doing the things that we're doing. And the motivation that you and I have for justice matters a lot. Uh, there's a, an old story that a preacher told that there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, My Lord, this is the, carrot that I've, uh, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you." The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as the guide turned to leave, the king said, "'Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so that you can garden it all.' The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home celebrating. But there was another man who was in the king's court who overheard this transaction taking place. And he said, yo, if this is what this dude can get for a carrot. Imagine what I can get uh, as someone who tends to horses. The next day, that man came back with the best horse he's ever had. He brought in sea biscuit. like, yo, bro, <laughs> look what I got for you. He bowed and said, Lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I'll, I've ever bred or ever will breed. Take this as a gift from me to you. The king took the horse and said, thank you very much. The man was confused. Now, I just saw this dude get a whole pot of land for a carrot. I brought this dude a, a thoroughbred, and he just says, thank you. And the king tells him, wait, 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 wait a minute. Listen, the reason, uh, let me explain this. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You were doing it for selfish motivations. You, don't, you weren't doing it out of gratitude and out of love and out of appreciation for my leadership. You were doing it because you had an angle. If we're not careful... You could be a person that does justice with an angle so that other people would look, uh, look at you and say, look how great they are. Now, I am all in favor of, of Instagram and social media and, uh, and c- celebrating good things that we're doing, but I wonder if social media didn't exist, would we ever do half the things that we do? So many times you'll see people go across to for a missions trip or something like that, and the entire time they're just taking selfies with them and other people. They don't really love the people; they're doing this for themselves. Maybe for you it's not advertisement, but maybe it's to work off guilt. Maybe you feel guilty about one thing or ten things in life, and you think that by doing this, this is going to earn God's this is going to earn God's favor for you. So you need to do these things uh, to earn something from God. And listen, if that's our motivation, it has nothing to do with the people but it has everything to do with you. Our motivations matter uh, a lot, and Zacchaeus's motivation here was, we see this in verse 8, it says, But, but Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, uh, look, Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Uh, when you do some study of this in the Greek, you actually see the, the excited nature of how Zacchaeus is talking to Jesus almost in such a way of Uh, how a a small child would talk to their parent, like, look, daddy, look what I just did. Look, 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 look. It wasn't to earn anything. It was simply out of excitement and and in relationship. Zacchaeus had received this amazing grace from Jesus, who despite all of the people who wanted Zacchaeus to fail in life, Jesus entered his life. And as a result of that grace, Zacchaeus now wants to extend that to other people. His motivation was seeing how Jesus entered his life, and he wanted to do that for other people. Now, Jesus restored Zacchaeus in two really important ways. Uh, The first was social. Uh, For Zacchaeus to have been a tax collector, it meant that he was excommunicated from the house of Israel and that people did not want to bang with him. It also means that Zacchaeus was also uh, alienated uh, spiritually and that he was disconnected from God. Jesus comes in and he tells, uh, this is what he says of Zacchaeus, this too is a son of Abraham. Abraham. You know what Jesus was doing when he was saying that? He was restoring Zacchaeus back to the household of faith, back to the community of Israel saying, this too is a son of Abraham, this is someone else, this is is your own brother right here. And in Zacchaeus' response to having been restored, both personally and socially and spiritually, his response was to seek restoration in other people. Now secondly, we see in this text, the act of doing justice. Now, whenever we talk about justice, one of the biggest questions that people uh, always ask is, all right, great, you preach a little sermon, little's a hate word, by the way, but uh, you preach this little sermon, and all right, good, what should I do with what you just said? Zacchaeus gave money, and, and I think Zacchaeus gave money because that's what was in his hand. He was a tax collector, and this is what tax collectors did. This is what tax collectors dealt with. So he gave immediately what he had access to. What God is calling you to do in your life might not be just money, it might be something completely different, but it might be something that's right in your hand right now. What is it that you should do? Uh, We've talked about this before in our last series in the Gospel and Race, how do you actually engage? Um, I, I think we need to look at our gifts, our burdens, and our interactions. Your gifts, your burdens, and your interactions. One of the most helpful analogies in scripture is this concept of, uh, of the church the, is, is like the body, um, and we're often called the body of Christ. And essentially what this is saying is um, in one human body there is a lot of different parts. Each one is intended to function different, differently, kidneys and lungs and hearts and livers and eyes and ears. Each one is meant to do something that's different, but they're all supposed to work together in concert. One of the things that people make as a mistake whenever we talk about justice is they arrogantly, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, they arrogantly think that the thing that they are interested in is what everybody should be interested in. My wife and I are really hot about uh, schools and public school system. This is our thing. This does not need to be your thing. Some of you need to engage in much different spaces and different things, and if everybody was doing one thing, what good would the body be? For you to determine where it is that God wants you to move and to operate in, I want you to look at your gifts, your burdens, and your your interactions. Your gifts are simply this. What are you good at? This doesn't have to be some deep need. This doesn't have to be some deep fulfilling purpose. What are you good at that you see a need that you can meet? And if you can meet a good need in a godly way, do it. The second one is more, um, it hits a little closer to home. It's your burdens. It's the thing that keeps you up at night. It's the thing that just makes you mad when you think about it. Uh, Your burdens are an amazing window into an area that God might be calling you to get involved and to be a person of justice. And the last one are your interactions. Interactions are not things that you're good at. They're not things that bother you deeply. It's just something that comes across your lap and you're like, well, maybe this is what God wants me to do. And when you sense a gift, a burden, or an interaction leading you in a certain way, I don't want you to pray about doing it. I just want you to do it. I want you to pray later. Frederick Frederick Douglass said it like this. I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. 20 years he prayed and received no answer until he prayed with his legs. Christians are hostage to this thing called certainty. We want to be certain about everything, and we don't know that God has called us to operate in wisdom. God is not calling you to operate in full certainty. God is not going to drop down uh, you know, a, a lightning bolt to tell you exactly what days of the week and what hour slots you need to work in. But God might just be calling you to move in a certain direction. And here's what's so important about moving in a direction and praying with your legs. You might realize that this is not a good thing for you. My wife and I, full disclosure, two, three years from now, you might say, Jordan, how's the school thing going? I might be like, yo, tried it, wasn't for us but we're not gonna know until we go in that direction. And you're not gonna know either. You're not gonna know what God is calling you to go, what direction, how God is calling you to be a person of justice, until you just put your legs one in front of the other and start moving in that direction. And praying all the way that God would redirect you if it's not for you. Now, the last thing we see in the scripture that I wanna highlight is the identification inside of us needed to do justice. Now, by identification, this is what I mean, that Zacchaeus no longer saw himself as better than the people that he was helping, but rather he had been humbled by Jesus in the very best of ways, and as a result, he could now identify with people who were vulnerable because he knew that he didn't deserve what Jesus was doing for him and saw himself as a recipient of grace, and that changed everything about him. For you and I to become people of justice, it's going to require that we are rooted in the gospel as our identity because the gospel tells us that you and I were in need, you and I were dead in sin, and Jesus came and he met us. Man, you know why some of us are stingy? (laughs) It's not that you need more wisdom. It's not that you need more money. It's not that you need to feel worse for other people, you just can't identify with them. I've told this story before, and every time I tell it, I get a little choked up. Um, My pops grew up pretty poor on the east side of Buffalo, and in middle school, he uh, had two pairs of pants and two shirts, and his shoes were always busted, and he got teased for um, for not being the best dressed kid in school. Growing up, my brother and I had the best of everything. This is why I'm a sneakerhead to this day, because he kept us fresh. <laughs> but it wasn't just us. Uh, I remember my brother, uh, at one of his basketball teams, he had a bunch of teammates who couldn't afford good sneakers. My pops, I'm sure much to the horror of my mother, bought the entire hood sneakers. Now, he had made it. He was an attorney at this point, driving the bins, wearing nice suits and kohans. But when he saw those kids who couldn't afford sneakers, he wasn't looking at a charity case. He saw himself. And when you see yourself and other people, when you saw that you had a need and people went out of their way to help you out and that you were a recipient of all of the good acts of other people and people have given you a hand to to move forward in life, that makes people not a charity case, but a point of identification. The gospel tells us that at our very worst, that while we were sinners, Jesus died for the ungodly. Think about the magnitude of that statement. While you and I deserved absolutely nothing, God gave us his absolute best in Christ, Christ God his son, for the ungodly. Jesus tells us his scripture, he ends it by saying, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. His description of Zacchaeus was a man who was lost and was now found. Now, I don't know if you've ever been lost before, but it is a a horrifying experience. And to be found is an amazing discovery. Jesus, all throughout the scripture, paints his picture. And all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament, it paints his picture of, of, of people, anybody who has now been brought into the kingdom of God as being previously lost. And now we are found. When I was in fifth grade, um, I told a story about uh, going to Philly on a class trip and me and one of my friends at the very end of the day, we started uh, you know, to get a little adventurous and uh, you know, wanted to have some fun and it made a left when everybody else was going right. We started off just trying to have a good time, but before we knew it, our group was nowhere near us. And 10 to 15 minutes later, we were lost. Now, this is pre-Beeper, pre-cell phones, millennials, cover your ears, you couldn't even text anybody. It was was absolutely horrifying to be lost. And for those 15 or 20 minutes, it felt like we were gonna be lost forever. Even worse, we had no way of finding what we needed. Fifteen minutes later, I saw the sweetest sight I've ever seen, it was my principal. He turned the corner and I have never been so happy in my life to see him. I hugged that white man like Arnold hugged uh, Mr. Drummond in different strokes. They thought we were family, we were different strokes up in that joint. Here's what the gospel says when Jesus says he came to seek and to save the lost. It means that you and I have made decisions in our life that have left us in a place that we were lost and we could not find our way back to God on our own. But then Jesus turned the corner and Jesus is coming to us not to scold you, but to give you a hug. It is that identification and seeing yourself as a lost person who was now found that would give us a heart for justice. To see our restoration and all that Christ has done for us. And to seek to be a restoration force in other people's lives. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know all of the different ways that we feel like we don't measure up. And all of the ways that we just um, can beat ourselves up for not doing different things. Lord, I pray for people who are considering making a, uh, uh, making a step in any direction, and I I pray, uh, Lord, that you would just let the wind of your spirit blow on their backs as they move in a direction of trying to seek restoration and justice in this world. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and uh, ignite us to be people of justice. I pray that we could see all the lengths that you have gone to for us, and that that would propel us to seek restoration in other people's lives. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.